This is Saatchi Wellcast by Saatchi and Saatchi Wellness, a podcast about health and wellness, medicine, and the pharmaceutical industry. I'm Paul Monis. Today we touch on a big topic, data, analytics, machine learning, and the role these technologies play in healthcare and health communications. I'm pleased to have an excellent panel of experts here uh, to talk to me. Two guests are from our halls here at Saatchi Wellness, and we have two guests joining us from our sister agency, Epsilon, a pioneer in the world of data analytics. Uh, Could you please introduce yourselves? Let's start with you, Robin. Sure. I'm Robin Pally, and I lead our strategy practice at Epsilon Healthcare. I'm Liz Barrows, and I do um, essentially analytic strategy within Robin's group. I'm Andrew Ghosh. I lead data science and engineering here at Saatchi Wellness. And I'm Kevin Trianos. I lead the analytics uh, function here at Saatchi Wellness, uh, as well as across uh, Publicis Health. Wonderful. Welcome, and thank you for being here. So let's ground ourselves first. I want to ask kind of a basic question. What is data analytics anyway, and how does it fit in the world of healthcare? Kevin? Yeah, so I mean, data and analytics is a burgeoning field, um, you know, that's really, you know, it's it's decades old, but really uh, over the last over the last decade has come into, um, you know, probably a, a bit more of a mature state. You know, it's a really wide definition. You know, for me, data and analytics is the application of um, data, obviously, um, mathematical methods, statistical methods, computer science methods. Um, and bringing, you know, and, and really understanding domain knowledge, bringing all of those things together to drive value with that data. So that value can come in a lot of different forms. Um, in, in some forms, it's, it's thinking about how do you extract knowledge from that data? So how can we understand, um, let's say, a customer set better than we could before based on patterns we can see in data? In other cases, it's thinking about how do you um, measure success, right? So if you put a program in place, how do you know if it worked well or if it didn't work well or if you're getting better or if you're getting worse? Um, in, in other ways, it's you know how do you leverage data to then make decisions moving forward either through human means or algorithmic means? So you know in some cases, you know data and analytics can be the application of using data to develop a new algorithm to you know uh, predict a future behavior or a future action. How are health communications companies using data capabilities today? Historically, I think a lot of it has been retrospective. How are our our CRM programs working? Um, You know, are they finding the right target audience? Are they driving engagement? What's leading to increased um, conversion and adherence? But where I think we're starting to see a lot more um, now, particularly with machine learning and other um, solutions is being able to look proactively into what is going to be the next best action and anticipating the needs of your customers, um, you know, both known and anonymous. And, and really, at the end of the day, they want us to know them and anticipate their needs and make things easier for them in a, in a respectful manner. Um, obviously, planning ahead, planning for the future forward-facing is very important in healthcare. I'm wondering if maybe, Robin, if you can just talk a little bit more about that using data in healthcare for forward-facing health goals, aims, support, et cetera. Healthcare has been one of the slowest industries to turn around and take the friction out of the system. Right now, if you have an ache or a pain, you might start with Dr. Google, and after that, you have to figure out which doctor would you see if you need to see a doctor. And once you see that doctor, you have to go schedule your test yourself. And every step of that path, and we all know there's 20 more steps in it, and whether to fill the script and looking up the med to decide. All of those are friction-filled steps where if you forget to take a next step, your care and ultimately your outcome will probably suffer. 
So getting to where we can predict what you want next, you've done this, therefore the actions of 100 people who did this before show that what you probably want next is this. Why don't we make it one click away or offer it to you in some channel, a text or an email? Retail's way better at this than we are. You're walking by H&M, you're, you're going to get a text. So we really need to get to using predictive analytics against a goal. And again, the definition of goal, as, as everyone is saying, is critical. The goal used to be, from all of our clients, just sell more product. And now it's get better outcomes by selling more product to the right people who need it. It's a very differently defined goal. The government and the population health people have been driving the change, but it's a good change for society. So we're talking about prediction that brings to mind machine learning, right? Um, but when you hear about machine learning in the press, it's either it's going to solve all our problems or it's going to ruin us all, right? It sounds like a lot of hype. Gosh, what, what make you of that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really... I think it's clear that machine learning is not hype. It's certainly been tried and tested in a lot of other industries, a lot of other verticals to great effect. I mean, Robin alluded to the fact that retail is so much better at us at reaching their customers and engaging with them and providing a frictionless surface on which they can you know, skate by. Um, healthcare is really starting to realize that. So there's a lot of different ways that machine learning and you know, predictive analytics are valuable in healthcare. You see a lot of it in a, in a realm outside of even the communications industry where it's being used to get better at diagnosis. It's being, it's being used to get better at identifying, you know, symptoms and triggers in patients before even a doctor might. But also it can enable us as a communications company to understand where and how to reach our consumers and our customers to serve up those, those next best actions, those next experiences that are going to make them be able to navigate their health in a better, more, you know, efficient way. So we talked about machine learning. Uh, a lot of people talk about AI. I think these are kind of used interchangeably. Can you just describe briefly, like, what machine learning is? Sure. Yeah, so machine learning is, at a high level, it's the application of statistical methods to learn patterns from data so that you can do something better tomorrow, right? So there's a lot of different flavors of this where... You kind of let the you can let a machine learn on its own in an unsupervised manner. You can have a human in the loop where you're kind of guiding the machine towards an outcome that you want to understand better. And there's a lot of different applications for these in medicine and beyond. Um, it's distinguished from artificial intelligence AI in a way because AI is kind of a methodology of recreating generalized human intelligence. So I think a lot of people use it interchangeably. It's not really that way. Machine learning is very much more a human-mediated process of achieving specific goals with data and applying the best-in-class techniques from computer science and engineering. Artificial intelligence is a very different thing, a very cool and interesting thing, but it's much more in the realm of uh, ideation and possibility. It's more of a multidisciplinary thing that's being explored by you know really cutting-edge practitioners, and it's not so much... Uh, playing a role in society today, as it seems. Correct me if I'm wrong, but machine learning is not new. Uh, I think it's the latest shiny toy, but really we've been using machine learning techniques for a long time. I think what's changed is that the computing power yeah. is better, and it's there's more and more applications that are front and center. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just reading a paper uh, of a guy who was a, he was a consultant for the government, and he was using machine learning to basically power an earthquake warning system in the 60s, right? So this stuff has been around a long time, 
And uh, the way that it's being applied is just very different now, to your point, because there's so much available compute power. And, uh, and it's data. And, data. and data. To that end, um, with great power comes great responsibility. And we now have more data sources than we ever had before about people um, and what they're looking for. But we have to be very careful, as it was demonstrated this week again with credit card algorithms, that an algorithm had recently placed husband and wife, husband and wives with exactly the same all shared assets and shared credit ratings at very different credit limits. Uh, I won't name the brand, but you all know it. Um, these are the moments when we have to be very careful that what the machines are learning is being taught with the right feeds and tested and that we are constantly in an experimentation and test and learn strategy because it's all about humans over hype. The, 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 the machines can do a lot, but they're not human yet. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing across the industry, because in this case, like, you're, you're, you know, a lot of times machine learning algorithms are actually based on identifying biases in data, in data and then leveraging that to make predictions. I mean, that's, if, if you look at the literature, like the scientific literature on how algorithms work, that's kind of what they're doing. So one of the things that I think we're going to see a big ri the, the rise of, and you're already starting to see it in certain companies, is the role of an AI ethicist. Okay. Because very often, bias in algorithms is not built by a person. It's not like a person is going in there and coding biased things into the algorithm. It's actually the whole point. Like, the whole point is you're not coding things in the algorithm. The algorithm is teaching its, you know, is, is learning through statistical methods. You need to be very blunt uh, in terms of you know the types of rules that we're setting up on top of those, so that things that might happen that we may not have even thought of happening or may not have intended to happen from an ethical point of view don't happen. So you're almost overriding certain things, um, and that's that's a key that's a key role, and in 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 health that is the most important role that we should be thinking about. I think moving into the future to that point, Robin, maybe you can touch a little bit more on on that angle of data, how do we safely, respectfully, equitably use data, especially in a regulated environment like healthcare? I, I really believe ethics is going to be the word of the decade right now, given the power that we have in data. Um, we all know that in the beginning of the internet, everybody felt the safety in their anonymity. And uh, you know, the joke was on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Now we know you're a dog, and we know your tag number, and we know your name is Bafo, and uh, we know everything about your dog, or you. Um, fortunately, most companies doing it ethically are doing this uh, in what we'll call pseudonymous. It's not a pseudonymous way. It's not an anonymous way, but your name is not linked to all the data that identifies you. The places where you can be touched with advertising or marketing is known, so are known. So the um, what that enables is that if we know that you have just gotten a prescription for X and you need more information about it to decide whether to fill it and whether the side effects are tolerable to you and how you feel about jumping on, um, we can feed you the information at your time of need uh, to a device that you routinely use without knowing, without ever knowing who you are or what city you're in or any of that with your name attached to it. So the difference is serving up marketing as a service and not marketing as an assault. Nobody wants the pair of shoes they already bought following them around the internet and retargeting ads for two weeks. But at the same time, if something does offer you a chance to chat with a live person at a moment when you have a, an intensely human question to ask, that's a service. Like even in a pseudonymous world, you, there is risk of re-identification when you bring too many data sets together in health. Right? There's, there's, there have been studies done very recently um, you know, that if, uh, if a 
a bad actor were to leverage algorithms in the reverse way, where they were leveraging those algorithms to actually use data to re-identify somebody, in certain cases, you know, what was HIPAA compliant data can actually not become HIPAA, like can, th there could be re-identification re of de-identified data. Um, and so one of, the, one of the main things that I think in health we need to continually be on the lookout for and continually be championing um, is the, the usage of data um, and the partitioning of data in such a way where re-identification isn't possible. So what else can companies do to really make the most out of a strong data analytics function? Kevin, what do you think? From my perspective, there, you know, I mean, the question goes back to data and analytic maturity of an organization, right? So, you, so, you know, to me, there's a little bit of a two-way street there. So one, it is incumbent on analytics folks, like people with analytics in their title or, you know, people that are really close to an analytics uh, team to make sure that everything that an analytics team is doing is extremely simple to understand at the end of the day. So any deliverable that, need, that, that should be developed by an, an analytics team needs to be developed for their audience and it needs to be developed in a way that is, you know, reduces cognitive load, enables uh, understanding and it enables decision making. So that's, I think, incumbent on data and analytics professionals in their own professional growth to really be thinking of themselves as teachers first and analysts second. So, so that's one piece. But, but on the flip side, I think it's critical, you know, for, for folks throughout the organization um, to be, you know, to, to make sure that they're not thinking of data and analytics, quote unquote, as like somebody else's job. The companies that have been disrupting industries are data science companies first. You look at companies like Uber, who have completely disrupted an entire industry um, of, you know, in the rideshare space. That company, yeah, sure, they have an app and they have, you know, folks who drive cars, but that is a data science company first, right? They are thinking about how you, um, how you, how you optimize pricing. They're thinking about how you optimize distances. They're thinking about how you, you know, balance all of these different things, and those are all based on data. Uh, and, they're, and they're based on algorithms. If you're, you know, companies that are really the disruptors in the marketplace are thinking about data first. And so companies, more established legacy companies, need to make sure that they are putting practices in place for those organizations to ensure that all of their people are maybe not data scientists, like you can't teach everybody how to develop a neural network and that's kind of not the point, but to become data, but to increase all boats from a data literacy perspective, I think is critical. Key to that success is not just treating data and analytics like a drive up window, that you have um, someone, you know, in my role who is, I certainly can't build the neural networks, I wouldn't even attempt to do that, but um, being able to understand what's possible and to represent the business needs and you know to come up with recommendations and be that translator if you will and i think the way that functions is that you know we're a part of the cross functional team multidisciplinary you know you have to have that person who's under you know um, fluent in data speak data and data scientists you know can often be viewed as you know the left left brain you know we're not creative but the reality is uh, you know you, being creative with data is a real skill, and I think it goes hand in hand with um, the sort of creative work that you folks are doing at the agency, and that's why it's exciting for me to be as Epsilon joining Pulisys is, you know, to be able to have that broader perspective. Well, that's really interesting. Let's talk about that. What is the link? You know, there's there's a few steps between gathering data points and numbers over here, and then creating and executing creative art, you know, messages that really speak to people, to patients, what what is that connective link between those two? There have been a, there have been a lot of attempts 
and a lot of hype around data quote driven creative. So like creative that is actually like developed by an algorithm or developed by a model. That is clickbait. I've seen the paintings. It's clickbait. They're yeah. They're, they're, so and that's the way it exists today. Um, and the reason is is because a lot of times, I mean, we've seen uh, you know in, in certain use cases. You know, what, what, what ends up happening when you try to take a fully data-driven approach is you end up getting into feedback loops. You know, you basically say, hey, this certain set of words worked before, so let's only use that set of words moving forward. You, uh, you see this sometimes in, you know, the way, um, you know, certain headlines are driven or certain email subject lines are driven by certain organizations. Sometimes you can actually really tell when it was a, an algorithm that wrote the copy um, because it, it uses a certain set of keywords in a way that don't necessarily, you know, uh, make as much sense. To me, I think there's two ways to be thinking about data. So one is to be able to drive empathy at scale, especially in health, because in health, we're not selling stuff. We're, like, we're just not. We're, we're trying to make sure that we're giving the right message to someone when they are in, you know, potentially one of the most life-changing situations that they've ever been in their lives. And we want to make sure that we're communicating with them in the most empathetic way that we can to help them drive to a better outcome or drive to you know, the next step and drive to the next best action. The other way is to be able to think about how we can create tools to help enable the, the creative process more effectively. A good example is you know, the, the utilization of um, historical data to write better copy through an algorithmic process. So not having the algorithm write the copy, but having the algorithm score a human-generated copy to see how similar it was to something that may have worked really well in the past or scored very well in the past. So using it, uh, use, and, and really the use case there is saying, how do we use data and algorithms in the creative process to basically do testing much more quickly and much more effectively? So we don't have to actually you know, put a whole bunch of stuff out in market, wait, and, and, and have it come back, right? So can you develop an algorithm that can actually help score copy or art or something like that based on similarity to things that have worked in the past to help inform future things. So to me, you can't, you can't take the human out of the process because you end up with robotic clickbait. Maybe one day that will change. Um, today, it certainly isn't that way. Um, and I, I certainly don't think it will change uh, anytime soon. Um, I think we always need to make sure that we're, you know, uh, we're, we're thinking of creativity as a uniquely human thing. Otherwise, you know, it's, we're not going to end up with a good product. Let me take one more step back, though, from, from algorithmically driven copy to the idea of uh, the data-driven segments of people defining the needs that a human uh, creative will translate into an, a compelling campaign. So, for example, with a medication example, we need to know whether there's a segment of of patients worried about the cost of the drug, worried another one worried about the side effects of the drug and whether they'll be worth it for the improvement they'll get, another group that might be worried about the impact of the infusion time on their job and are, is, are they going to be able to continue to work, and yet another that might be thinking, do I trust this doctor? I believe in alternative medications. Do, you know, do I really think I, I trust what this doctor is saying? And of course, what you would say to each of them to address their concerns with information would be completely different. So if we can put enough of this data-driven information in the hands of creatives to actually tailor their messaging more tightly, uh, now that we have the technology to break up campaigns and deliver at a scale of one-to-one, -one, individualization, not just personalization, that opens a whole new ballgame. The idea that until recently, we could only customize to large groups and we could do a handful of custom groups. But now we can take the data that's known about you, again anonymously, and attach it to your profile that we're speaking to and 
give you exactly what you want. So if you're on a cruise ship, instead of giving you a menu of 60 excursions to choose from, which has a relatively low yield for the cruise ship and a dissatisfaction process for you as you make your way through reading all of this, we can know that you're somebody who loves the orchestra and I'm somebody who loves to go out on a kayak and go on an excursion to a glacier and that uh, Liz is somebody who wants to be a foodie and go to the cooking class on shore and I can offer you the five or six that pertain to you, drive the acceptance rate far higher and make me very happy that I don't have to read all that. Well, certainly, um, you know, Epsilon brings um, new data sources to um, Publicis, which opens up a lot more opportunity to understand the, the attitudes, the lifestyles of consumers and your target audience. And with machine learning and algorithms, you can certainly start to identify patterns and, you know, associations that you wouldn't have normally considered. But at the end of the day, you still need that human... Um, interaction with the data and, you know, collaborating with folks from other, um, you know, disciplines, because that's really going to tease out those ahas. I think right now the power of bringing together an Epsilon and a publicist group is we suddenly have a subject matter expertise culture across all of our organizations. We have payer expertise in one agency. We have creative expertise in dozens of agencies. We have data expertise and analytics expertise all scattered all around. We have data governance and the, the unsexy things, the, the let's call it the, uh, I don't know what instrument would be the unsexy instrument, but whatever anchors the orchestra there. Maybe it's the tuba in the back, but, but we, Trying. yeah, we're going to have to, we have to bring together at any given moment in the right order at the right volumes, all of these different disciplines, and we need the, the data scientists and the strategists asking the right questions, and then we need to figure out how to listen enough to each other and to the customers to understand how to persuade the clients of what the real need is as opposed to what the perceived need might be. And then with that, we have to test and see whether that was accurate, feed that back into the system, take it round again, and so that orchestration function, the conducting of it all, and um, having having people who are more right brain and people who are more left brain thinking together about how we're going to use the creative to activate and the data to drive. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful idea. Well, this has been a very lively and interesting, thought-provoking discussion. Many thanks to Rob and Liz, Gush and Kevin for uh, joining us here. To hear more stories from the world of health and wellness and to get the latest episodes when they launch, follow us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or TuneIn. This episode of Saatchi Wellcast was created with contributions from Jacob Strunk, John Devine, and me, Paul Manis. Saatchi Wellcast is a production of Saatchi and Saatchi Wellness and produced in New York City, New York. You can find us on Twitter as at SSWellcast. Thank you for joining and goodbye for now. <laughs>